Welcome back to the Gen X Voice Podcast. I'm your host, Trish the Dish. And you know how on this podcast, we like to try to find some common ground among different generations. And I'm so excited to have this couple of humans on the podcast this week from the synth pop duo, Nay, um, Janae and Ryan from Illinois. You know, I love my Illinois people. Um, they're going to share with us their musical inspirations, how they grew up, and then how they use their um, educational in music background. I don't know if I said that right. Um, but man, I have not heard people um, dissect music and the cre- creativity or the creative process, rather, um, like these two millennials have done for us in this episode. I'm so excited for you to hear some, I've added in some little bits of their music. And as always, I'm going to have all of the links to um, to Nay and where you can find them and download their music in the show notes. So make sure if you fall in love with them like I did after hearing them on this podcast, run over to the show notes, click follow and make sure you get updated with all of their cool YouTube concerts and just their music in general. Um, I think it's really neat, you know, just kind of thinking in terms of, you know, being a podcaster and kind of doing this for fun. You know, one of my DIY punk rock, punk rock roots, boy, try saying that three times fast, um, is all about shedding light to um, independent artists. Um, and just having this platform where I can share um, talent like this to all of you, Um, it's like, if you could see my face right now, I'm just so happy. I have this big smile on my face because this is exactly why I want to do a podcast. I want to obviously destroy ageism. I think it's wonderful when we can meet, um, and find the common grounds that we all share. Um, and, and for you guys to hear this music, um, you know, this, this music's going to be heard, you know, all over the world. Um, I mean, they're already listened to <laughs> all over the world, but, um, you know, there's, we've listeners in Sweden and Macedonia and Australia and, you know, parts of Canada and all over the U S and it's just like, um, I don't know, the little punk rock kid in me is like, so delighted to share this, um, this group with you all. And so without further ado, here is my conversation with Blizzle and Nay. Hi, Nay. Hi, Blizz. Hello. Hello. What's going on? How is it going? It is going great here. Oh my gosh, you guys, we're going to hit 90 degrees here in the desert for the first time this year. And it's, it's only going to, it's only March. <laughs> Wow. You guys are still deal- dealing with uh, freezes and snowstorms, right? Yeah, we got like highs in the 50s, you know. So yeah. it's a little chilly. That sounds pretty warm, though, for northern Illinois in in uh, end of March, though. It's not been it's not been too bad, to be honest. And we um, 
we have these beautiful blue flowers that come up like mid-March um, in our backyard. And they just, it's like, oh, okay, cool. Spring actually is coming. They're technically an invasive, like, blue flowering plant, but they just look so beautiful. And it's like, yes, flower time. It's good. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Illinois in the springtime is why I ended up living there for seven years even though I have not a lot of connection to Illinois. I just kind of moved there randomly from New York City once. Um, but the wow. flowers this time of year is just amazing. What um, what part of Illinois did you live in? Well, I lived in Illinois a couple times. When I was in elementary school, between like fourth and sixth grade, I lived in Belleville, so in the southern part. Mm-hmm. And then um, from about 25 to about 32, 33, 34, I don't know, seven years, whatever that number would be, seven yeah. plus five. <laughs> uh, that was in Springfield, Illinois. Oh, cool. Oh, okay. Yeah, but you you guys are just outside of Chicago, right? Yeah, we're we're just north of Chicago. Um, we, we, we have a uh, a 100-year-old farmhouse brick farmhouse that's sort of set up as a two flat at some point in the past uh which is cool because that means there's sort of like two kitchens in it um and what we've done is converted the entire second floor into uh, a studio space and um the first floor we try to keep all of that stuff out so we really we try to keep our our work and our life and stuff separate a little bit um physically uh in the actual house but it gives us a a lot of great um access to like just go and do cool stuff regardless well yeah and it's so important when you're living in your creative space to be able to have distance from that my studio is in my bedroom, so I don't have that freedom. <laughs> but um, what I do have is, you know, the ability to not be in here, right? When I'm not recording or, or sleeping. So it's just those two things. That's it. Um, well, I am so excited to have you two here. You both are from the Genius Musical Project, Nay. And I would like to ask each of you what year you were born and what generation you identify with. Great. Um, I will hop on this one first. Um, (laughs) My name is Janae, but my stage name, as you mentioned, is Nay. And um, I was born in 1988. And I would have to say I identify the most with and am classified sort of by virtue of as you mentioned, the year I was born with the millennial generation. And um, actually, a lot of the concepts in the music that I write, the lyrics speak specifically to a lot of the sort of <laughs> struggles and situations that um, that I've found myself in, that friends of mine have found themselves in, uh, living in, in this sort of technology-driven space and uh, specifically in the realms of marketing, advertising, and how that looks with, uh, you know, the, I guess, the millennial generation having a lot of purchasing power, a lot of buying power in our capitalistic society. So um, I would say that I most identify with the millennial generation, but throughout my life, I've had friends that are 
10, 20 years older than me, 10, 20 years younger than me. And um, I, I always find that there's so much you can learn from folks who, you know, just have that like slightly different time time period that they've that they've gone through in their life as well. Um, and I can speak more about that as we move forward. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I was born in 1985. And uh, after talking to Nay a little bit yesterday, I think I am also classified as a millennial. But uh, honestly, I'm, I'm not that hip on all the uh, generational divisions and where they occur. Um, and uh, my name's Ryan, and I go by Blizzle in the show with Nay. Uh, and I grew up with a whole lot of classical music and um, classic jazz. That's it. I didn't watch TV. I didn't have a media influence. I didn't own a computer in the 90s. Um, so my, I feel like cultural reference points, the majority of them are, are based in the 1950s and sixties, um, because that is the media that I was allowed to consume. Um, and uh, man, I just, yeah. So I, part, part of my life has been based around this interest in learning what my generation is supposed to know. Um, and so I've gone off in, in weird directions where I'll like get super into sort of um, late 80s and 90s metal um, because my songwriting partner, Patrick Sully Sullivan, uh, is about 15 years older than me. And many of the friends and stuff I've had over the years are, are 15 to 30 years older than me. Uh, and then also in teaching, I've had students that are my age and younger, and they I often can't relate to that either. So um, I love learning about history and and that side of the importance of what I, I think importance of entertainment and art and creativity and how that actually pushes society forward. Um, but uh, I don't know that anyone would talk to me and be like, oh you're definitely a millennial unless it was in dismissing that I don't know about something that is new, if that makes sense. But I also don't know about things that are millennial. So (laughs) I don't know that. (laughs) Well, it sounds like Patrick's a Gen Xer. So that's pretty rad to have um, one of your music besties be um, a Gen Xer. And and I love what uh, you were saying because – the thing that's really interesting that I've discovered since I started this podcast is that there are um, cultural differences among generations, but not necessarily within the generation generations. So, right, you you were saying that you identify more with 1950s and 1960s culture, and that shows that it's really dependent upon your exposure of what you really identify with as. So, so you're basically a millennial boomer, (laughs) a a millennial. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go with that. So Janet, you explained um, a little bit about um, how you grew up and, and it sounds like you've had friends that were Gen Xers. Actually, we were introduced 
via a Gen Xer I've had on the show before, Michael Maley from X Generation Now website. Um, so happy that he introduced me to your music, by the way, and we'll get into that in a little bit, um, as well as people that are younger than you. So we're talking about, uh, you know, Generation um, Z. So what I'm more curious about, though, is what what did your childhoods look like? So, Ryan, I, I know that you were touching on some of your influences and not being not having a computer and stuff like that. But, Janae, what were you doing as a child and where did you kind of grow up? Are you both from Illinois and, you know, were you watching TV? Did you have a computer? <laughs> yeah. So. I grew up in the Kansas City area, so I was um, I was born in Springfield, Missouri. But my parents moved when I was a baby to the Kansas City area, and um, it was just it it was a wonderful, wonderful city to grow up in. And my parents even moved us to um, the suburbs, and so we or I ended up going to school with a lot of um, really just boundary pushing, like critical thinking. Uh, folks around me at the high school that I went to. But as a child, um, I guess I had a lot of different interests. But the thing that everything seemed to always come back to was art. And that's, you know, that's the space where I felt the most comfortable as a pretty quiet, pretty shy kid. Um, Whenever my parents or my grandparents would take out a video camera to just, you know, record some cute stuff that I would do, or if I was singing a song, or if I was uh, explaining a, a poster drawing that I had made, I would actually start crying and like run away and hide under the bed because I didn't actually want to be filmed as a child. I like was really scared of just of the lens or whatever that whatever that meant um, as a very young child. And I remember my mom she would make me these really cute, really beautiful outfits and like handmade bows for my hair. And just like my dad loved doing my hair in a ponytail. It was really, really wonderful. But as far as like media influences, I would say that I was a I was kind of a nerd <laughs> in a, a, a many, many senses. Um, I mean, I grew up watching Sesame Street, which was always a wonderful show. And I I, w- I was reflecting about our conversation uh, upcoming today and thinking about like what was the kind of media that I would consume as a kid. And then I was like, oh, we totally just had like fluffy puppets on our show. It all makes sense. Um, <laughs> but I would watch Sesame Street. <laughs> and when I was uh, in like sixth through eighth grade, I got really into just waking up at 5 a.m. before school would start because this was a time to be away from my brother who was five years younger than me, away from my parents who were still asleep. I would get up early and I would watch um, uh, the Pokemon TV series, like the the animated cartoons, and and I would all and then like Sailor Moon (laughs) was on before that, so I would make sure I yeah I would make sure to catch both of those. Um, But of course, as a child of the 90s. There was so much Magic School Bus, Bill Nye the Science Guy. We didn't have cable TV or Nickelodeon or anything like that. So I was totally a child of PBS. And I feel like I would always finish my homework really early or like on the bus ride home. I was just sort of, I loved learning and was constantly on top of my work. I feel like for the majority of my childhood, I never actually took home that much homework, which (laughs) allowed me to come home and draw pictures I wrote a short novel about people that lived in the sewer when I was like 
in the sixth, fifth grade. And um, I just I loved watching television shows that had some kind of like scientific exploration component. And then if I could sneak over to my friend's house, I'd definitely catch some Nickelodeon. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Your childhood sounds so similar similar to mine because I didn't have cable and growing up in the 80s, um, we really only Mm -hmm. had uh, regular TV. You know, rich people had cable. Right, right. um, Nickelodeon came out when I was about 10, but I could only watch that when I was staying at people's houses, like you said. So um, I also wrote a sci-fi short story when I was like fourth grade no or way. like that and loved reading and writing. Yeah, I'm telling you, this is why I love you guys. <laughs> like your space stuff is the best. Like the kid in me, well, hell, the adult in me just absolutely loves it. Um, what about you, Ryan? How was your childhood? Uh, it sounds like a little well, bit sheltered. Well, I, you know, I don't know. I think it's sheltered in the context of um, what many other folks the same age would have been doing. Uh, but it was also an exposure to like a much wider, um, I think, palette of things than some people might have. Um, my my parents are my whole family uh, is classical musicians. Um, so my parents met in music school at Northwestern um, and both have masters and have, you know performed and toured as classical, specifically classical musicians. Um, and that was kind of the expectation. So there was. Growing up, uh, you know, I watched McLaughlin Group with my dad. That was about my TV exposure. So, um, you know, some world wow. events. <laughs> that's not a light yeah. program. Uh, <laughs> that, that's it. I mean, there was a little bit of Sesame Street. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there it was uh, basically the, I would say the overarching attitude was kind of like, if you're going to do something, you're going to try to be the best at it. And um, that that sounds great. And like... I have a lot to live up to and I feel like part of my entire personality and sort of drive to do things is, is about trying to achieve that ideal, uh, whatever that is, but like, um, in some sort of physical way, like, like my dad has a Grammy, like that's like, okay, cool. And I have, you know, several friends who also have Grammys and gold records and stuff. Like I said, many of my friends are a little older than me, but like that type of like drive, like that's hard, right? You grow up with that like in your house and like I wasn't the um the I I don't the, the natural talent that or the talent that like my brother had who's a violinist in the um Pittsburgh Symphony and uh concertmaster Grant Park Symphony here in Chicago like he, he was very good and is very good and he practiced a lot uh I also practiced a lot but I was not that good right like I just didn't have that like I'm going to I'm the best I wanted to be, but I wasn't. Um, but I tried, and 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 same thing with sports. So most of my childhood, from about where where you guys are talking about fourth grade on, um, it was academic, like school stuff, trying to keep up. And I, I did well. Um, actually, as I went along in academics, I sort of I think learned the system better, and it didn't just become um, needing to you know remember everything to like get an A, it became like, what is the teacher looking for? And like, how do I critically think about how to do well in a class? And then music and actually hockey. Uh, and I played AAA hockey and traveled doing that. And so between those three things, um, going into high school and stuff, um, I mean, that was it. I tried to practice somewhere between three and five hours a day on trumpet. 
So put that in perspective of what most, you know, seventh graders are doing. Um, and I rebelled. My, my rebellion was playing jazz music as opposed to classical music. So <laughs> oh, wow. I was a real rebel out there. But kind of hard to not do. I mean, so it sounds like you kind of grew up around Northwestern and being that close to Chicago. I mean, why wouldn't you be exposed to jazz and and have that be more of your where your heartstrings were? Yeah, pulled? absolutely. Um, and I used to go down uh, downtown um, to see jazz shows in high school. We'd take the train down. Uh, me and my my friend Skander, we had a jazz group. Uh, frankly, I charged as much then as I do now to play a gig as a, as a high school student, we were cuter. We had the cute factor, but we would play gigs um, and perform and, and do weddings and corporate events and stuff like that. And then we would go see shows uh, if they would let us in. Um, so yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, that type of experience, like I said, I, I think there's, there's a worldly experience that comes from figuring out how to navigate the L and stuff, especially if you don't live in the city um, that, that I really do value. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So how in the world did your two worlds come together? Cause Nay, I know (laughs) that you kind of traveled around a little bit. You met Michael in Austin. Yeah. So, um, I, I mentioned I grew up in Kansas city and I've, I learned so much living with my parents and my parents are, are wonderful, wonderful people. My dad's actually a landscape architect. My mom, um, has always worked as a interior, as an interior designer doing freelance work. And they, they've always been super supportive of my passions and also supportive of my decision to, uh, go to my undergrad education down in San Antonio at Trinity university, where I knew I, I wanted to um, sort of go, have a liberal arts education where I could study a wide range of things and ultimately ended up with three majors <laughs> in political science, art, and Spanish. And I'm like, okay, Whoa. I've, gr- yeah. And I, I, I mean, it's, it's one thing to be like super excited about that, but another to like have the cold, hard reality that like I'm graduating college in 2010. And we're still trying to rebound from the uh, Great Recession of 2008. There's not a lot of jobs. And uh, I I also knew that I wanted to pursue art in a meaningful way and surround myself with interesting people. And that's why I was like, I'm going to take this unpaid internship at the Visual Arts Center in Austin so that I can at least get connected with the community there. And of course, it was an unpaid internship. So... I got my first restaurant job in Austin and oh my gosh, like you can learn so much intellectually <laughs> as a, uh, a student in college. You can get a lot of information having three majors and all of that. But uh, I feel like it was the time that I lived in Austin and I started working at a fine dining steakhouse, Fleming's, where I met uh, Michael Maley, with, uh, who, who is our mutual contact. Um, and I just sort of love taking in and listening to the stories and experiences from all of the folks I was working with at the restaurant. And I was only 22 at the time and knew nothing about wine and knew nothing about like just being a human being and being able to kind of wing it and perform a little bit. And it's it's folks like Michael, who I learned from uh, just in those downtime conversations, chit-chatting at the bar, 
where you can just learn a lot about other people and about life in general. Um, and the I feel like the restaurant environment is just like this perfect sort of space to soak in the experiences of others and also have shared experiences. So um, after that, I, I was applying for graduate school and sort of prolonging my, my time not having to actually like face the real world in a sense, um, became very comfortable, you know, working in the restaurant and loved it. Uh, I ended up going to graduate school in St. Louis at Washington University uh, in St. Louis. Oh, my grandpa went there. No way. That's awesome. Great. It's a great school and they have a wonderful, wonder. yeah, it's a wonderful city. And um, WashU, just the, the Masters of Fine Arts program in visual art there is just fantastic. So, I was studying there for two years and focused a lot on performance artworks and uh, as well as um, documenting interesting, strange spaces, specifically dead malls. So a lot of the work that I was producing in graduate school was film-based. I used my body in strange spaces, etc. And I knew that that graduate degree was sort of going to be that um, ticket, in a sense, to being able to teach art as uh, a professor in some sense. So I spent some time in St. Louis teaching at um, a university in that area and also sort of trying to figure out how I could make my next move and live in a large city. And, and Chicago just seemed like the right place for me to go next because of my Midwest upbringing. And just I've always been fascinated and just in love with the Chicago architecture and the landscape here. Oh my god, it is my favorite city in the world and I've lived all over. But yeah, when you're when you're living in the Midwest, St. Louis and Chicago are just the best. Chicago best. obviously being yes, the best. I agree. <laughs> yeah, Kansas City's not so bad either. Um Oh, it's it's a wonderful city, but man, St. Louis and Chicago were just my destination places for sure so when I lived cool. there. But I, it's funny that you asked how we met because Ryan actually hired me for uh, one of my first jobs in Chicago, which was to teach um, as a uh, part-time faculty in the the art school at a college called uh, the Illinois Institute of Art. And Ryan hired me. Yeah. So (laughs) that's so good. So, Ryan, how in the world did you get to be someone who could hire art professors in Chicago? Yeah, well, um, I, I, I went to uh, University of Michigan as a uh, trumpet major, uh, classical and jazz trumpet, and, um, and then uh, continued the jazz degree and dropped the classical degree, uh, just realizing that that probably wasn't the right direction for me. Um, but it... it with that jazz group I mentioned earlier, uh, I had purchased a PA system and it started doing some recording and stuff in high school. Uh, and I'd always been into composition when you have a jazz group and you're studying 1960s jazz all the time. Everyone of that era wrote a lot of music and, uh, this, it, it will all link back to how I met May in a second. Uh, so the, uh, in college I, I got into yeah, in college I got into recording and and more and more, and I realized uh, that in some ways it was easier to make you know 150 bucks like recording someone else's concert and then going back uh, than it was to try to go around and get gigs as a jazz musician, frankly. Um, 
and I really enjoyed it. So I pushed um, the the departments there, and they opened up a master's program, and I did my master's in what was performing arts technology. And what was cool is, like Nay, it allowed me to go into performing arts, like installation projects. I did a lot of collaborations with um, dancers, and I also and so I did a lot of installation art things where I would set up microphones on one side of a path, for example, and then like as you walked, I'd have speakers down the path that would pitch shift and reverse and play yourself back and overlap it with other people coming down the path, and so it would reframe your perspective of space, and um, that sort of work led to learning about more and more technology in the system. And I realized I really like that side of it. Uh, and coming out of college, then I was like, as a grad student, I like teaching. I liked working with younger students um, and sometimes older students. There were a couple of cool projects I did with DJs and stuff that were older, but it was neat to like put cameras on turntables and have that sync to video. And like, what does that mean on a dance floor? And now we see all this. I mean, this stuff is just commonplace. You go to a show and there's a VJ and there's videos going. But at that time, that wasn't necessarily what every DJ was doing. It wasn't easy, right? Um, so I, I love that. And I got into programming a little bit and things of that nature. So coming out um, basically with a, with a master's degree and a jazz degree, um, like Nay, just kind of trying to figure out, well, what do I really want to do with this? Um, I like teaching. And I also kind of like the administrative side of things. I like thinking about systems. And that feeds very well into the technological um, work that I do professionally. Um, and an opportunity came up to teach at the Illinois Institute of Art in Schaumburg. Um, and they hired me and then immediately threw me into like five classes, which was insane. Um, but it was great. And it was, it was definitely a boot camp for teaching and, um, helped grow that the audio program specifically there, uh, teaching every class they had, um, with, with just a couple other teachers. Um, we grew it from about 20 students to about 120 over the course of like three or four years. And it was really exciting time. Uh, and then I moved up into administration positions in the school. So then I spent another four or five years there doing that. And was looking for teachers who had skill sets that went beyond just their technical knowledge. Um, it was, I will, uh, you know, to to go uh, to pull back the screen a little bit. If you work in administration in a college and you put out a job posting for a photography teacher, within like six hours, you'll have like twenty people giving you resumes that are phenomenal, and you're like, I don't even know what to do. Yeah, I actually work at a university and I don't work in admissions, but I, I have a lot of friends that do. And yeah, that is it's crazy. <laughs> no I mean, joke. in other areas. So I, end, I ended up overseeing six departments and um, audio, photography, video, game design, uh, animation and visual effects. There it is. And honestly, what I wanted was people who weren't just one thing, people who had flexibility and who could speak about the larger framework of art. And um, there were literally like 35 applications within like five or six days of a photography position. I had to hire several faculty when I moved into administration because of other things. And um, so uh, Janae just popped up in a phone call and I was like, yes, this is great. We're talking about larger the scope of things. How does this apply in the real world? How do you make a living doing this, right? That that school was not aimed at, you know, creating conceptual artwork and putting people into galleries. That was not really the point. The point was, how do you make great art? How do you 
use your skills to make a living and do it at a professional level. And that means a lot to me personally, because I, I, once again, I grew up in an artistic family, but that means we made a living doing these things. They were work. They're not some innate skill. You just show up and you make a bunch of money. It's practice. It's this sort of thing. And um, yeah, so I hired Janae and then stuck her in like five classes and put her through boot camp uh, at our <laughs> school. It's true. Yeah. And uh, just over, over a couple of years, she started um, playing some music with Black's Backbone, which is my um, sort of indie synth pop. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. How would you describe Black's Backbone, Nay? Like a indie electronic yeah. sounding outfit. It's, it's the Blizzle brainchild. It's a lot of different things. Yeah. <laughs> And that, that, yeah, that's how it happened. No, no, that, that's it. That's how we, that's how we met. We met professionally, worked together for like three years. Uh, and it was amazing. And unfortunately that school, um, you know, has closed down since then. And, um, I've moved into more production gigs and, uh, project management at a, at a larger corporate level. Um, and then working with Janae and producing this show as well as several other albums. So. Well, it's so interesting that your backgrounds aren't really um, wrapped around, um, I don't know, the, the 80s, even though everything about Nay is like, probably <laughs> why Michael, you know, said, Trish, you've got to check this out, because I'm an 80s junkie, obviously, right, growing up in the 80s. Um, but also just this like, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of the the new wave movement that happened in the 80s mm -hmm. with like Depeche Mode and Erasure and all of these really synth heavy bands um, from the 80s. But I mean, so so how in the world did you all come into this sort of synth world or, or were you really into those bands too? Or was it just sort of this like natural progression of just kind of what was happening during your time in the, in the zeros and the tens when that stuff started coming back? For me, I, it's, it's interesting that you ask that. I feel like there's always been this aura of mystique around the eighties for me, because there are so many like, really interesting Jim Henson puppet type things that came out at that time. And I, I do remember as a child, like constantly checking out films from the eighties to watch them because the covers just looked so much more like rich or full. Like whenever we'd go to Blockbuster, I'd like check out the dark crystal and be like, I'm ready to watch this this time. And then I'd get too scared like 30 minutes in. Oh my God. I saw that at the theater when I was five. Cause they didn't, they didn't warn us as kids. <gasps> oh my like, God. We weren't sheltered like, yeah. like millennials. It was just kind of like, sure, kid, go to the mall, go to a movie by yourself at like six years old. And you're sitting there watching like <laughs> dark crystal and, and, and legend. Right? And these are scary movies, you know? <laughs> Even though there's really fits, but mm, never ending story. No, I yeah. would ne exactly. And I would check out never ending story. I'd check out dark crystal. I'd, I'd check out labyrinth and, you know, and try to watch these films and always like think about them and then check them out again. And my parents would be like, what is up with you, Janae? Like, I don't think you liked this last time. <laughs> so for me, there's like, there's always been this mystique around 80s themed things but then it was really like I, I don't really think I did that deep dive into 80s culture um, until probably graduate school when a lot of folks 
were looking at my work and and telling me like you need to see this film you need to you need to watch this have you ever seen working girl i'm like never heard of it what is this and and so my my film watching list really expanded and expanded dramatically um and it's like all of the images that i saw (laughs) like reminded me of my mom's um glamour portraits that were in our house where i just thought my mom i just thought she looked so like but my mom is super beautiful and there's this one specific picture of her with like she's got the hair she's wearing this like golden sparkly thing and everything's kind of fuzzy and i felt like watching those films just like it it reminded me of that like warm fuzzy space i don't know it's a very subliminal thing for me in a sense but then actually consuming the content and then hearing how real synthesizers sound. It was like, okay, I grew up listening to Britney Spears and toxic and just being totally infatuated with those synth lines that were coming out in like early two thousands music as a child. And then when I was introduced by friends in graduate school, friends at the restaurant to all of this new music that I had never heard of, it sounded like the future. Like it sounded really, really boundary pushing. So talking about um, Depeche Mode is a great example. Um, I know you're going to ask me this maybe in a little bit, but the, the Bronski beat Age of Consent album. Oh, my God. You can play that on repeat. Duran Duran. So good. And um, <laughs> Oingo Boingo. Every Gen Xer listening right now is getting chills because you basically just turned yourself into an 80s kid. Because that's like all the stuff that we were so consumed with when we were kids. Yeah. And it sounds, but it sounds so good. And even, even like looking at, and and I went on this big, like Weird Al purge, like looking at Weird Al music videos from the 1980s. Like, I don't know if you've seen his, his version of the Jurassic Park, like it's Jurassic Park is frightening in the dark. <laughs> I, you know, uh, he wasn't one of my favorites. So when he came out with that, I hadn't really paid attention. I didn't have MTV at the time, um, but gotcha. like a surgeon and eat it. I mean, these were classic, you know, eighties by the time Jurassic Park came out, I was already a senior in high school and kind of, you know, doing my own thing. So it wasn't really, wasn't listening to the radio, definitely wasn't paying attention to him. But I appreciate that you're, you were drawn to his, um, you know, satirical absurdity um, that yeah. he was doing. And I always respected that. It just wasn't something that I wanted to put in my headphones and listen to day in and day out. But <laughs> totally. <laughs> but, well, Blizzle, how in the world did you come up with a name like Blizzle? And how did you get from the, 80s or sorry from the 60s and 50s into this like because you have all these pedals that you do um you know you guys will record something and you'll loop it so it just keeps playing um because there's only two of you in this band but it's it's so synth heavy how did you get yourself to that sort of synth world yeah i well i learned a lot from nay and and i think one of the interesting things that I have found um, is my ignorance of music related to time periods is high, very high. Um, like I would know Depeche Mode 
but I would not have any idea what, I mean, I know it's not 1940s because of the recording technology, but to place that in a decade um, would have been very difficult for me a year ago, even, uh, even though I've heard it, even though I've listened to it. And that's just how I categorize music has very little to do with the decade in which it was made, except for the recording technology, which honestly hasn't changed that much in the last maybe 20 years, right? We're, we're still using digital systems and stuff and, um, they're pretty much the same. So for me, everything I listen to is, it's very difficult as I'm sure Nate would agree. It's very difficult for me to turn off my analytical brain when I listen to music and I go through cycles of really enjoying music, um, for maybe like a period or like maybe a month or two. And then for six months, not that. It's not not that I don't listen. I listen, but all I can do is analyze it. It's work, anything I listen to. And um, that is, that's how I figure out music. Um, and so uh, 80s, synths, 90s, rock stuff, I, I just listen to it. And as I mentioned, uh, Patrick Sully Sullivan earlier, um, he is... 15 years older than me and he is definitely a metalhead from New York used to go to underground clubs and listen to metal bands and he is someone who is just an encyclopedia of music from that era in that specific area right in those genres um and so I've learned a lot from him but I also don't retain it because there's no visceral value to me of being able to debate the differences between the Beatles and ACDC and how that somehow influenced the Metallica's third album. Like I just, that type of conversation, uh, doesn't, I don't really care. Uh, but I do care about how it sounds and how they made it and, and how they recorded it. And like, why does metal music have so many different genres? And now we hear that it's same thing in electronic music. Um, and that's fascinating. So I, I find that what often will happen is I go down these rabbit holes and Janae might get some of these emails where I'm like, you should listen to this, 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 and this. And most of it she's already heard. Um, but for me, that experience of listening to every Depeche Mode thing I can find and analyzing what's consistent between it is is just fascinating. Um, so that's sort of the, my my approach to genre. Like, I I want to listen to everything. So people, I've it's often been assumed that like I don't like certain musics because I don't know that much about them or I don't retain the historical uh, archive in my head well. Um, and that is definitely not the case. Like I love listening to death metal and the couple times I've gotten to like mix it. I've been like, this is really difficult. There is no way I could do this. You know, like, I mean, I can, but wow, this takes a lot of work and I appreciate the craft of doing that, the art of doing it. Um, and that, yeah, so that's kind of my approach as far as the name goes. Uh, people just started calling me that it's kind of a combination of, I did have an interest as a 90s uh, uh, person of uh, with the hip-hop of that era, sort of that when hip-hop became pop music, that transitional period. Um, and Blizzle kind of sounds like something that might be referenced by Snoop Dogg. Yeah, you know. So people just started calling me that. Yeah, I love that um, your route through music is, is so different. Um, I have a, actually have a lot of music major friends who have, explain the same um sort of 
feeling about music that you've described. But what I also think is really interesting is the fact that you both are, you know, about 10 or so years old, younger than me, um, you came to you came online, quote unquote, when there was already so much and um, music and movies and, and books and um, pop culture was just saturated by the time you guys were probably starting to consume. So, um, you know, if you look at 1995, 1988, when you guys maybe were really starting to consume things or at the age that you could, now you're talking about the rave scene was starting and all of the, you know, house music and all of the electronic music that you guys are that you had mentioned and then this whole new movement of um, music that came through that kind of was this um this rolling up of of alternative music and and kind of redone to be indie rock um and so what what a it would not surprise me at all if I were to throw out a genre or a name of something and anyone 10 years younger than me would look at me like, I don't know this because there's just so much. And even now discovering music is just like, all right, what's the AI on Spotify going to throw at me? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so what I love is the, the reason I'm so, um, attracted to your music for lack of better words is um there is this visual aspect of it which Nate that must come from your um you know performance and the, you know those that that sort of performance art and the dead malls and the photography and things like that and um obviously the 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 tightness of the music is coming from Blizzle's amazing um auditory background of of mixing um but it is unlike anything I've ever heard in my life. And so I want to talk Thanks. a little bit yeah. about how hard it is to create a new genre and what what inspires you to like make music like what what when you think of your music and your songs are you thinking of them purely as I can't wait to shoot this for YouTube or is it like listen to this little ditty I did isn't this amazing and then oh what could we do that with you do you know what I mean like what kind of comes first yeah well I I think I think there there's a process there that's always evolving with any um, artists that work together if it, if it's a solo artist I think um, that stuff can be like kind of more easily defined but in our case um, or yeah in our case we have um, I mean, I, I kind of have the folder up in front of me. We probably have around a hundred plus sketches and songs that are somewhat completed. And often what happens is after I go down one of these rabbit holes, um, I then go and I write what I call sketches. And um, this is a process that I've been doing as a composer for over, you know, 15, 20 years now. And I write these sketches and if one of them sort of pulls me into like really composing it into a form, I do that. Um, and those are often the ones that I then send to Nay. And so there's some of the songs you'll hear on the album, Push Button Future, came from these ideas where, um, for example, I, I think it was a student. Someone thought it was hilarious that I would consider writing like a trap beat. And I was like, why? I don't understand why that's funny. 
it's just music. But like I was, you know, the old professor or some crap. Right. And, and I was like, and okay. it's music that's happening now. So, of course you're going to want to integrate to keep your sound fresh, right? Instead of, as opposed yeah. to adding something that would hearken to like Perry Como or like Frank Sinatra. Yeah. And, and, and for me, it's just a challenge of the technology, which kind of relates to what you were asking about earlier with all the, all the pedals and stuff. Like, okay, when I hear a new sound, like the, you know, I, I definitely will check out an album you know, like the, uh, the first Skrillex album or whatever. And I'm like, well, how are they doing this? You know, that's the first thing that's interesting to me in any genre. It's just, how are they, how did they do that thing that is sounding different that people are connecting with? And so, you know, I wrote a trap song and I sent it to Nay as kind of a joke, like, Hey, you probably won't write anything on this. Uh, and I wrote a synth pop song cause she was like, well, I really want to do this. Like, 80s, you know, thing. And I was like, all right, well, send me some links. I'll listen and then let me play around with that. And I wrote probably four or five and I sent her one. Uh, and there's a bunch that also are K-pop influenced and stuff because I went through like a six, well, more than six month period where I was just consuming a lot of K-pop. And by consuming, I mean, like analyzing down to the point of like, how many different synths are they using to create this one second break? And how many sound effects? And like, what is the kick drums is the kick drum different between the verse and the chorus? Oh, and it's different in the bridge. That's interesting. And what's the rhythm of the kick drum? Let me write that out. Okay, that's cool. So like I go through this just like overly obsessive process. And in that process, I iterate a lot of compositions. Um, and, and that's exciting for me. Um, and then it leads to the technology we're using in the show with looping. One of the albums that is influential to me is... Um, James Morrison, who's an Australian trumpet player, ab, uh, all brass player, um, screaming trumpet player, um, but he also plays saxophone and piano and so forth. And he has an album called Snappy Do that's all him. And it's it's amazing. It's full big band arrangements, but it's him, right? And that, that was an album I checked out in high school and it made me think, okay, so you can do a lot of these if you write the compositions. You can complete the compositions using technology, overdubbing your own recordings. And so that's led into my interest in all the loop puddles and stuff you use. Yeah. And I first first off, thank you so much for the kind words about you oh, yeah. and your description of the kind of music that we've been creating, because I think we've had a hard time ourselves kind of classifying it and putting it into language as we've been, of course, putting out press releases and trying to describe it to others. And um, it's it's wonderful and refreshing to hear those kind words from you. Uh, oh, you're <laughs> so welcome. Just, just speaking from the heart. Just yeah. <laughs> I mean, I... I guess my my process as far as songwriting is maybe a little bit non-traditional one because I've never I've never really you know been I have not been a songwriter until like the last 5 or 6 years um and I kind of started nay as this sort of joke like a persona that could sing about really heavy topics related to our our current cultural situation cultural landscapes um, the problems that uh, that we deal with and, and kind of present them in this sort of like sugary pop music coded thing. And my, my very first rule that I set for myself is if I'm actually going to try to write pop music, I'm going to challenge myself to not write about relationships, not write about all of the emotional emo stuff that people expect to hear. Um, and I'm still 
I'm not opposed to writing about that, but I wanted Nay to be able to deliver a sort of critique about the world and um, deliver it in this really fun pop music synth based thing that can basically allow the music and the vocals to give you that amazing ineffable feeling that really good music does when you hear a song that you want to put on loop over and over and over again, um, like so many of those artists that I just mentioned to you. But my my process usually starts with a question like, what could I say about um, <laughs> what could I say about people that are like trying to present a persona of themselves online on social media? I'm going to write a song called. I'm so good at pretending to be cool. <laughs> and so I, I, this song exists. It's not recorded and we haven't performed it live. But the song is, I'm so good at pretending to be cool. You can watch, play the game, do, do it, it too. too. Let's take off, rocket to, to the moon. moon, pockets on my space suit. <laughs> you kind of, you get the idea, right? And, and so, I mean, I'm using this song as an example of, of a song where, you know, we can use space as this metaphor for this alternate reality. We can use space as this metaphor for, um, the, the, the way that we want to be perceived because space allows the opportunity for multiple simultaneous realities going on. Um, and so when I'm, when I'm writing these songs, I'm speaking from the perspective of multiple different caricatures or, um, you know, typically, you know, white women between the ages of 30 and 40, because that's, you know, the experience that I can speak to. But a lot of the songs will start out as just notes on, on my phone, uh, in the iPhone notes app. And I'll write down a, a catchy little line or a lyric. Or, for example, you've heard the song Runaway Bay. is the, thir- the third song on Push Button Future. And that started out when I I was driving um, to a gig, a photography gig, and um, passed this townhome subdivision called Runaway Bay. And this is in Palatine, Illinois. So it's nowhere near a bay, let alone even Lake Michigan. And it's, you know, like this sign was maybe put up in the early 90s, late 80s. It's kind of falling apart and the paint is chipping back, but there's this beautiful little emblem of a wave with the sunshine. And to me, it was like, this is, this is the perfect example of the sort of aspirational place to live. Like it's titled itself off of runaway Bay, something that that doesn't even exist. And it's sort of these, you know, like made in, in the late eighties, early nineties townhome development community. So um, <laughs> that's how that song started. And what's wonderful about working with, with Blizzle, with Ryan, is that he'll send me, you know, these little studies. They might be a minute and a half or two, two and a half minutes and say, Nay, if you have any ideas, you want to write to this. And I'll kind of go through my, um, my notes or maybe a new idea will come to mind and I can start putting a voice, um, a character, an idea 
like one of the ones that I've described to one of the tracks that he sent. And then it kind of evolves from there. And just as he's learned maybe a few things about my interests and, you know, the sort of passion for the 80s that I that I've embraced, I've learned so much musically from him, both about vocal delivery, um, leaving space, how to present the lyrics, as well as how to how to improvise live. Um, I had never done that before. I had never improvised a solo on stage. And um, only in the last three years, uh, playing with Ryan, playing in Black's Backbone, and learning about improvisation and how to do it, um, have I really come into this sort of like, okay, I'm a synth artist. I can play this. I can play a solo on the synth. I'm not just, you know, I grew up taking piano lessons and learning the basic theory and now I, because because of collaborating with Lizzle, I now know that if you put that second in there, if you put that ninth in there, if you put that eleventh in there, that chord gets really sexy, really fast. <laughs> so, for my own songwriting process, if I'm writing the melody or if I'm writing the music to the song, for example, the song you heard on the show last night, "Anti Gravity." Yeah, that was a fun one. and whatnot as I was just sort of like I think Blizz had been playing a drum beat and I just started playing chords over it but I would have never been able to improvise those chords or even figure them out if it weren't for really learning uh, a lot of musical strategies ideas and jazz chords from working um, from working with with Blizz on other music and other projects so I'm really grateful it really sounds that like jazz is just this ability to learn the instrument in such a way that you can go anywhere with it it's almost like going from a coloring book when you're learning a, um, an instrument to like a Jackson Pollock painting you know like just completely different totally. but you're still using color mm -hmm. and you're still kind of yeah. um using space um but you know i before we we wrap up um today i want to talk about just the the visual aspect of your show so i thank you so much for inviting me to your youtube um concert last night it was so great there's so much that you put into it because visually it's just amazing I mean you've got cutouts and you've got um you know I, I, the the show that I saw before that that Michael shared with me you you went underwater you had like this underwater part and um you know everything is kind of like you said it's based with space um because that's kind of this um 
alternate or maybe exactly the reality that a lot of people live on in online and like that's their outer space right to be whoever they want um how do you come up with these ideas and where i mean for the visual part of it and where do you come up with the time because you're <laughs> you're you're making all this music but then you're creating these experiences for us i mean your costumes alone your outfits alone are just Oh my gosh, your silver, you know, uh, coach jackets or whatever they call those. Oh my God, I want one so badly. <laughs> yeah, those, we have big plans for those jackets. We haven't yet executed the, um, the 80s themed sort of, uh, what what would they be called? Like, May? like patches. patches. Every time we complete yeah. a mission, we get a patch. Yeah. 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 So we're, we're going to get there for that. That's, I mean, we know what the patches will be. We just haven't figured out like, how do you actually make patches? Um. Well, I, I can I think I can answer in a in a way that references some of the things I talked about earlier, which is for me uh, and something that I teach when I work with students and stuff, especially with composition, um, but also with mixing and sort of any craft that um, where there's there's a, there's a set of skills you need to learn in order to be able to fulfill it is like the iterative process. So I love being fed like I like being like an algorithm where I'm fed some input data and then I come up with potential outcomes and working with Nay, um, there's a lot because she can reference so many historical things and, and uh, 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 just like specific things to an era or artists and, and whatnot. I love taking that in and being like, well, what about this? What about if we try this? How about this? What does this work? And, and, trying as much as you can as an artist to completely divorce your ego from those ideas. And I really enjoy that process. And I think that's part of the reason we work well together is I like that front end of like ideation and iteration. And I also really like and take on the responsibilities of like technically making it all work. And in my opinion, Nay is just a master of like, okay, then we could take it and we could create this visual and we could have a Gravoonian that's actually a little poof ball. And like, and like, I didn't think of all those details, but I did think about like, well, what if we call the planet Gravoon and it has like gravitational tides because it has a huge moon. But I also thought of like six other things I can't remember anymore. You know what I mean? So that's at least from my, <laughs> from my standpoint, I really love that, um, you know, what you would call a brainstorming session. Um, but we do that throughout the process yeah. of creating And, and it's the like, show. there's this, um, you know how, if you have a, if you have a dog and you're like, you want to go for a walk, the dog's like, it's it sort of like gets the leash and gets really excited to go. Well, mine just um, kicks her head to the side and, and then like jumps off the couch and puts her head up on me. Right. <laughs> so your dog doesn't, doesn't do like the tail wag, like goes to the leash, goes by the door, like ready to go. No, because I usually say it at the door, and and she can't reach ah. the leash, and her tail's a nub, so <laughs> it's a whole bunch of nonsense. <laughs> well, to 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 use that as an example or a really excitable pet, um, we have this we have this phrase that we say, uh, maybe more than what we should. Well, no, it, there's never it's never enough. But the the phrase is, you know what we could do, <laughs> and then prepare. Yes. And then, and then it sort of becomes this like idea thing that we both just get really excited about. And it's at, at, because my background is a visual artist. 
I I find the visual to be so so important and and sometimes considering we're doing a music pro- a music based project it's funny to think about the music as being the driving thing instead of the visual uh, which I think is sort of inherent like the music has to be good otherwise it doesn't really matter like what it looks like or or what it feels like I mean maybe but I think that the especially for a live stream like you could lose the visual but if you still have the audio, like this podcast, for example, it can be a really wonderful, immersive experience. Um, but thinking about thinking about the audio or and the music that we're making and what the visual is to go with it, I get really excited about um, sort of doing the sketches, crafting out what it could be or what it could look like. And um, I mean, Blizz is just a fantastic visual artist as well and we're able to bounce a lot of ideas off of each other what whereas i'm like really interested in like crafting the handmade construction paper landscapes and aliens um you know that was the idea to do that was actually Liz's idea hey we could make stuff out of construction paper people have done this in the past for shows and that's a really easy way to make something quite life-size but at the same time Blizz is the person who spray painted the whole backdrop that just absorbs the lighting that we've put together so well. Um, And then with my photography background, I'm always thinking about, okay, what's a styled shoot that we could do that will really speak to our personalities where we can costume it up and do some hilarious poses. But let's be honest, like let's set it up in our basement. Let's go for it and see what we can come up with. And so the visual has always been a really awesome driving force to your question about how do we find the time? I think that's an area that we're both still really trying to navigate. And we've both actually as (laughs) Blizz and I are both, more introverted personalities and we love being home we love the time and space to think to draw to make music the the pandemic over the last year has just been an amazing time for us and we've been teaching we both teach at respective universities here in chicago we've been able to teach online which has saved us so much of the commuting time uh (laughs) we we both work in production and so normally on saturday nights we would have gigs, photograph. I would be photographing weddings or corporate events. Ryan would be doing live sound and audio production for other events or production management. And with the last year, that time is freed up for us in what at first was a really scary space because we're like, how can we financially make this work? But it has turned into this really wonderful, like, I guess, silver lining of realization for us that if we can schedule out time specifically for the creative work and if we can schedule time to be together if we can schedule time to make music we can make this happen and so it's an ongoing conversation how we can keep that and make it and have it continue to be a sustainable balance between both we have to have income we both do love teaching um but how do we how do we balance that with the creative work and how do we move forward and i think for us the first step was saying no matter what happens, we are dedicating one Saturday a month to the creative work, whether that's putting on a Saturday, whether that's recording new music, whatever that might be, that time has been set aside. And that's, uh, it sounds small, but that's a really big well, step. One, one, let me clarify though. Uh, one day a month for like a large piece of it. And that, right. 
by right. dedicating and, and putting that on our schedule and telling other production gigs, like potentially turning down hundreds, if not for us, you know, if we're both working, you know, thousand plus dollars of income, if we're working like 16 hour days, um, by putting that in the schedule, it demands that you take it seriously. And so as we did that, it like, it really like over the course of like a week, we were like, are we serious? Did I seriously just turn down another $600 day? Like, you know, in six months. And the answer was yes. It was like, okay, that's serious. And, um, so it's, it, I mean, it's a very business-like answer, but I, I just wanted to clarify that that yeah. one day a month is like, we absolutely don't schedule anything else. And that makes us make the time in other places in our lives. And take it as seriously. So it's no longer just this sort of hobby that you're doing, but it is a, um, a job. And, and that's actually how I do my podcast. Wow. Like today, you're the first of three interviews <laughs> I'm doing today. And I haven't loaded up three interviews in a day in a few weeks because I've done other, you know, podcast convention, yeah, sure. I've been a, a guest on other people's shows, you know, other things. Um, but, but every, every few weeks I'll, I'll just jam pack a day with a weekend with interviews and editing and that's all. Right. And there's nothing else. I'm, I'm not going out hanging out with friends, nothing. But, um, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Otherwise you're just kind of dabbling here and there and not taking it as serious. <laughs> Guys, I wish I could talk to you another hour. I had no idea what I was going to unravel with the two of you, but I have to say that I'm not surprised because there is, um, there is such a depth to your um, your your pop and uh, synthetic and you know bright colored shimmery. There's such a depth to it that um, is is unlike anything I've ever seen. I just wish you just all the luck in the world. I'm so delighted uh, for for our audience to hear your music. I'm going to put all the links um, in the show notes. And of course, um, you know, oh, just, <laughs> why don't we go ahead and plug? I'm so excited. Um, and why don't, why don't you guys go ahead and take a, a, a minute to plug yourself? Where can everyone find you? Follow my Instagram. It's at nay synth pop. That's N A E synth pop, all one word. And, uh, my website is www.naymusic com And if you go to my website, you can click the tab that says Saturnay and find out about when our next show is. Um, so those are the, the two best places to go. Of course, through my website, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel, receive notifications whenever we go live. And yeah, it, send a message too. If, if you're listening and you're like, wow, what's going on? Who are these folks? Like, send us a message. We, we love meeting other artists, musicians, people that are interested. Um, and we're specifically looking to connect with people who are in the areas of science, industry, technology, doing really boundary pushing things in their field so that we can push, um, push that side of, of, of our work as well. Um, we interview, we inter we want to interview scientists and people who are uh, inundated with cultural studies to add additional voices to our show. Yeah, we don't have time to get too deep into it, but the educational <laughs> aspect of your show uh, last night was so dope. I mean, just the fact that you had an environmental, um, I can't remember her, her 
title. Environmental engineer. engineer. Yeah. Yeah, dude, that is so dope. Uh, yeah. An environmental engineer on and just kind of scratching the surface about waste. Um, I'm a vegan and a low waste person myself. So I was like, so yeah. happy. Yeah. Like, what a beautiful way to present this message. And I know that uh, after the after show, um, you guys were talking about, wouldn't it be neat to do this at 2 p.m. for kids? And uh, just, mm-hmm. I, I wish you guys all the luck in the world. And I am such a fan. I will be coming to every show. Um, as soon as you guys have t-shirts or something like that, I'm all about your merch. Because I don't, I definitely believe all in supporting right. artists that way. Um, and just, yeah. So at this point, though, we're going to go into the rapid uh, fire question section of the podcast. Are you guys ready? I am ready. Sure. Janae said I should have thought about some things and uh, <laughs> definitely did not. So let's see how this goes. Yeah. And it's got to be rapid fire. So I might have to cut you off if you get too spaced no, out and long. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. Rapid. All right. So we'll go Ryan and then Janae or we'll go Blizz the Nate. How's that? Perfect. Sound, there we go. There we go. Okay. Yeah. What's your favorite memory from childhood? Christmas. Christmas time. I loved it. Lots of instruments, lots of fun, family stuff. It was wonderful. And for me, it was trips to the Kansas City Plaza with my parents. We'd walk around the Riverwalk, go shopping, look at all of the fountains and sculptures. And my parents even pretend named one of the fountains after me. Ah, I love that part of Kansas City. I used to take trains in and out of there. Um, It's so beautiful. Yeah. What's your... Oh, Gosh, what's your favorite 80s band or musician? Or do you have one, Blizz? Oh, my, okay. I'm going to start. I'm going to start. I don't know if this is 80s. I don't. But, I okay, Herbie Hancock's Headhunters. I think it's. I think that's like 70s, but I don't know. Well, he, he was big in the 70s and then came back around in the 80s. So we will take that answer. Mine is uh, Bronski Beat, The Age of Consent, the 1984 album. Every single freaking track on that album is so good. Boundary pushing, like queer identity, just all of it in the music. It's so good. The last song, Junk, samples uh, TV commercials that were popular at the time. It is a freaking amazing experience. What is your favorite 80s movie? Oh, man, I got to pass on that. Oh, yeah, okay, hold on. Is Gremlins from the 80s? Yes, it is. Okay, so not favorite, most hor- horrifying, kept me awake every night for weeks. Oh, I hated that m- movie. Must be because you didn't watch Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> I didn't. Absolutely not. Oh gosh, no. That stuff was not permitted in the house. I'm telling you that. No way. My my favorite '80s film is a three way tie between Mannequin, The Dark Crystal, and then David Lynch's Blue Velvet which I didn't see until I was much older, but oh my gosh, that, that movie is so rich. It's so good. You guys kind of explain this, um, why you guys went to college. Pretty much in a nutshell, was it because you had the passion to, your parents told you to? Uh, I think it was the expectation for me. I just, I wish I had gone in with a little more concept on where I wanted to go personally versus what the expectation of society and parents was. For me, I uh, spent a lot of time being really scared to leave home and then senior year hit and I knew for sure I wanted to leave Kansas. (laughs) And uh, I, I I toured Trinity in January when it was like snowing in Kansas City and it was 80 degrees there. And I was like, this sounds, this, this is great. This, this feels good to me. (laughs) 
This is my favorite question to ask my guests. Um, again, we'll start with you, Blizz, and then Nay. Um, if you had one bit of advice to give anyone in any generation, older, younger, or at the same, what would it be? Try to do something cool. Try to do cool shit every day. I think mine would be to listen to what other people have to say when they're when they're sharing their experiences with you and never assume that you know more than someone else um because there's always something that you can learn from folks oh my gosh you guys are amazing i absolutely love that what a pleasure it has been to um get inside of the creative process and and just the depth of who the both of you are thank you so much for coming on the podcast Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, this was awesome. This was such a fun way to spend our Sunday afternoon after the show. And it's wonderful to meet you. And we're so, so, so happy to have the opportunity to talk with you. Thanks for listening. And if you think this is worth listening to, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Be kind to each other, listen to each other, and let's stop being separated by our differences. I don't